Hey, and welcome to the Friday Chill Out. This week we discussed the revival of Pebble and just how difficult it is to launch a new phone company. We talk about the benefits of selling premium versus low-end phones and whether Microsoft Loop, the company's clone of Notion, will destroy the product that it is cloning. As a reminder, this podcast is 100% supported by people who subscribe to Nebula, just like yourself, who get each episode a day early on Friday and as an optional video version as well as a thank you for your support. If you'd like to get early access and support the show, go to nebula.tv slash chillout. Hey there, we're back taping this Friday chill out from Berlin at about midday, almost exactly midday. Martin from TechAltar and the Friday Checkout and everything else. You're here. Hello. I'm so happy to have you back in Berlin. Berlin was cold and lonely without you. <laughs> I'm back. Also, but... <laughs> also, I'm just happy for you to suffer the winter with me <laughs> rather than hey. enjoying that damn Australian <laughs> Look, summer. I, yeah, I look. I'm a little bit of a shell of myself, um, but uh, it's nice to see spring has sprung a little. There's some green shoots out there, so the hype is real. I think so. I'm I'm happy to be back. Honestly, it's actually fine. Um, the weather's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. The only problem is the jet lag. Like, isn't too bad. But I wake up now before six a.m., which is actually kind of fine in Australia because cafes are open super early. Like, you can go to the beach. Like, cafes are open at six or seven a.m. And here in Berlin, yeah. that's the sleeping time. You you cannot get a good cappuccino before 11 here, which is outrageous. I was thinking 10, but yeah, 11 is... Free, yeah. Um, and uh, okay, before we get into it, and uh, we always try and get into it at first, but last week's podcast, pretty cool with your lovely partner, Maya. Um, and it seemed to go well. I was impressed and also terrified that I can hold on to my co- co-hosting role. You are replaceable. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm happy to have you back. (laughs) All right, good stuff. Um, Martin, let's get into it. So one of our main stories to chat about this week that isn't in the checkout is uh, how the wish of the original Pebble founder um, for the small Android phone may actually be happening. Um, And all it took was the wish of uh, Pebble founder Eric Mijikowski. Um, He he sort of made a big deal about um, the lack of a small Android phone uh, late last year. Um, even starting a petition. And um, despite the fact that the Zenfone 9 and the Flip Foldable are pretty small devices, um, it, it sort of Eric put up a wish list of features and that started a proverbial pebble, which triggered an avalanche. I hope you like that. Um, and about 40,000 nice. people. Yeah. So 40,000 people signed a petition of interest, which is obviously a long way from 40,000 people putting up some money. But hey, you know, there's interest. So. The news now, Martin, is that there's a group effort uh, with former Pebble employees and others uh, happening. And there's like a website, there's a Discord, smallandroidphone.com. Um, and I don't know, look, it's both more and less than I was expecting. So The Verge dug into it a little bit, had a chat with some of the team members. Um, and there's like activity and there's common smartphone components being sorted out. They're talking about how they want to build it. Um, and there's some actually really interesting things. So... Uh, I want to run through a bunch of these little things. Is that okay? And then I'll let you sure. talk about what you yeah. think. <laughs> I'll get out of your way. But I have thoughts, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, so just so everyone knows, basically what they're saying is uh, they want a nice, nice soft slab of a phone. Um, they're going to go for a Qualcomm Snapdragon chip, which is interesting because Qualcomm may or may not be interested in uh, smaller um, smartphone makers. Uh, but they've talked about something like the 8 Gen 1 or 8 Gen 1 Plus or even a mid, mid-range, mid-range option. Uh, the community is being told it'll cost something like eight, 850 bucks, um, And that's if they get 50,000 pre-orders. So, uh, yeah, it's 
a little bit expensive, but it's not crazy, I suppose. Um, and they've also talked about the challenges about making a good camera. Um, and one thing I didn't foresee, actually, is that uh, they may struggle to get a small display. So they were saying they've spoken to some manufacturers, and one manufacturer the group spoke with had actually killed off any display panels smaller than six inches. They just don't make them anymore. So I thought, I didn't realize they come off the shelf like that. I figured you could be like, hey, I need this. And they go, yep, we can make you that. But no, it seems like that, you know, if you're not big enough, they they just actually have like a, a warehouse full of certain size slabs, so uh, display slabs. So kind of interesting. Um, Martin, I read the full thing and it, you get the feeling it's both very early, a little bit vague and much could change. But, you know, progress is happening they are working on it um but uh, it's going to be pretty hard to get fifty thousand pre-orders um unless which is, you're which is what they say that that's kind of the magic number at which they could start the project and it could yeah. start making financial sense so we did see nothing make this happen you know carl pay actually managed to dress up some uh fancy studio shooting and make a phone and actually you know do it seem seemingly do okay in sales and, and just they just brought out the nothing year two as well so there's like a little ecosystem building there but it's really hard to start a hardware company everyone knows that um and especially in a smartphone where you need that high level software as well so um that's kind of the story that's kind of where we're at um and uh i don't feel particularly strongly about it because i think i think it's great it's interesting it's fun I think the likelihood's very small that it actually gets off the ground, but I think you have more firm, interesting thoughts. So um, yeah, go for it. Let me let us know what you think. Yeah, so a few more small details that I think are okay. relevant. One is that they're planning to build a phone that is roughly the size of an iPhone mini, which was four, uh, 5.4 inches, uh, but definitely something under six. They'll have to see what kind of display they can get, of course. And just for comparison, there is an Android phone that's less than six inches, which is the Zenfone 9. So uh, there's that. They specifically, uh, what I found interesting is that uh, Eric specifically said, he kind of predicted that the iPhone mini would go away because it's too small of a business for Apple to have a unit that sells like 10 million, uh, to have a model that sells like 10 million units. And he was Mm -hmm. correct. Apple killed off the iPhone mini because it was too small of a business for them. Um. Fun fact, every other Android maker also killed off their small Android business because it was a too small business for them. So I don't know, hint, hint. <laughs> hint, hint, indeed. I don't know. I mean, like, you know, you can't you can't discount that. But sure, uh, for these companies, they have to have a certain amount of return before it starts seeming like it's a reasonable investment. Um, uh, one more thing that I found interesting was that they were thinking about offering two years of software support. Mm-hmm. Kind of rough. Kind of rough for an $850 specialty phone. Um, part of the problem is that uh, they're trying to get a Snapdragon chip, uh, but it takes seven to nine months from idea to perhaps having a phone, according to their estimations, which is mm-hmm. pretty optimistic. I've talked with a bunch of company founders who build phones from scratch, uh, including the Carbon Mobile founders who are based in Berlin and the Block founders who are based in Berlin. And the problem is that you do not get components like a a Snapdragon chip unless you're a big company and you don't get it early enough. Uh, So either you don't get it at all because Qualcomm just will not talk to you unless you have somewhere in the tens, if not at least hundreds of thousands of units. Uh-huh. But you you will definitely not get it early enough, 
which means you're you're at best uh, getting the chip once everybody's already used it. And then from there, you need seven to nine months to build your phone. So by the time you come to market, you're at least a generation or two behind. Oh, I see. Okay. And then that, in turn, also makes the software support more difficult because Qualcomm doesn't support their chips into eternity. And you're out. Like, I mean, they're now thinking about using last generation processor and they're still like at least a year away from chipping the phone. By the time the phone comes out, there's only going to be an ex- a certain number of years where Qualcomm actually makes it easy for the support to happen. So very tricky on the timelines. Um, say, they say that they want to use a tier one OEM. Uh, that specifically refers to a Chinese company, most probably, mm-hmm. or a Taiwanese company that will put together the phone uh, on their behalf. This is mm-hmm. normal. Every phone company, it would, it would be insane to start production uh, uh, manually. Fun fact, Carbon Mobile did. <laughs> they just they went they? and decided Goodness. to like launch a completely custom manufacturing thing in Germany. Oh, that's right. They bought they bought the facility someone had before, right? But they uh, they rented out a, a specific uh yeah, manufacturing yeah. line. Did not work, surprisingly. Um so <laughs> Well, I don't want to be I don't want to be negative because it's really really hard to do this. So I just want to like paint the realistic picture. No, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah, so they want to have a tier one OEM, which is somebody like Foxconn, right? Like there's a few others uh, that are like Foxconn, but essentially you go there and you say, hey, I want a phone. And then they're like, hey, this is a phone. Do you want this? Do you want to put your logo on it? <laughs> and then you're like, no, I actually want to customize X, Y, and Z. And then they're like, okay, well, that's going to cost you this much and that much. And then yeah. they actually do a lot of the really hard work on your behalf. Usually they often uh, negotiate. So is, this, is this ODM, like original design manufacturer? Yeah, is so it? the the term OEM and ODM is used very loosely okay. in the phone community. So um, in my opinion, uh, uh, anyway, it's hard to define, but it's a company okay. that does, That's fine. That's depends fine. on who does how much of the research and the actual development. But so these companies typically, especially if you're starting out, they're doing most of the, the the hard work. They're talking to suppliers. They're integrating stuff. They're writing the firmware for your phone. Is it? <clears throat> this is why, for example, Nokia, uh, well, the HMD had a bunch of firmware problems because Foxconn was writing firmware for them that uh, uh, <laughs> HMD ended up uh, not liking. But so, like, you you don't have a thousand engineers to like you know optimize RF uh, problems. <laughs> they often uh, do the camera software for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the Pebble X Pebble people are also saying that they're going to uh, have some Chinese company make the camera software for them, which, um, which is exactly what Nothing did as well. I think everybody the, does. Like, I think yeah. in the beginning, this is yeah. you can't. You can't expect to do all of these things yourself in the beginning. Well, yeah, that's a massive problem, the camera optim- optimization and software controls. and oh, I can't even imagine how how difficult that would be, even with a large team of engineers, let alone uh, you know having three volunteers sort of working on it on the side until this thing actually goes anywhere. Exactly. And so you, you start to see like the scale of the problem. Uh, we've only really started scratching at it, but um, this uh, tier one OEM, which is what you need to have a product to be really nice. Uh, again, will not talk to you unless you have very high order numbers. Um, they've been, they've all seen many Fair. companies trying to go there and and uh, trying to launch a new product. The, the OEM or ODM or whatever we call it 
takes on a pretty significant risk on behalf of the phone brand because they create the production lines, they en- hire the engineers, yeah. they uh, build, they uh, sign uh, contracts with uh, various companies on behalf of the phone company. So th- the, this manufacturing company is very careful, especially by now because they've seen so many projects start and fail. They're very careful by now. And you really have to put a lot of money on the table and show some real guarantees that uh, you, you're like amazing in order for any serious OEM to even look at you. Uh, so uh, <laughs> unless they have uh, a large number of users and cash collected, uh, I think it's going to be very difficult to even get started with an, uh, 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 manufacturing. They're saying they need 50,000 pre-orders. I calculated if uh, there's a price of, of uh, $850, that would be $42.5 million yep. in pre-order money. Of course, some percent of that goes to payment processing and blah, so like, let's say 40 or less than 40 or something like that. Um, yeah, they did say they, didn't, they don't want to use Kickstarter. But like, they want to do crowdfunding, but Kickstarter would take something like two and a half million themselves. So they want to... Yeah. They want they want every every dollar they could possibly get aside from the the very basic fees that they'll have to pay. Yeah. yeah. So for for contrast, um, the Nothing Phone, or Nothing as a company, has raised one hundred fifty million dollars. Right. Uh, so this okay. gives you an idea, and of course they they yes. they do this smarter, by the way, because a of course uh, they had the whole. Uh, backing of the old OnePlus enthusiasts and people uh-huh. and supply chain and and Carl has built a phone before. At yes. least the people have built a hardware product, which is nice. But it's, right. it's, it's a different thing to have built a phone. They have they have been through this process before, so there they is have. something there. There is something there. Uh, I don't want to I don't want to be too uh, negative about it, but uh, yeah. So, but but uh, Carl did the smart thing and he built a much simpler product first, which is an earbud. And then you start having cash flow, you start having retail relationships, you start having credit cards of people who've paid you before, you start having email addresses that you've collected. And then on top of that, he, he built the phone. Um, so starting with the phone, extremely difficult, um, yes. especially if you want to have custom components of any type. Uh, for an- anything that you do, it's it, you have to create a new mold, you have to create a new process, you have to hire new people at the the manufacturing partner that you have, etc. Yeah, and those forty something million dollars sound like a lot, but they disappear pretty quickly once you start doing custom things. And the whole point of this is that it's supposed to be custom. Like if it's just if it's just like the same phone as everything else, I don't I don't think it would uh, uh, have a chance to stand up. Yeah, so. Okay, let's let's be let's be optimistic about this and say, okay, these Pebble guys know know most of what you've said. They've, they've dealt with some of this before. They've actually Correct. made products and and so on. So the question then is sort of like, can this be a community effort where people don't really care that it costs a little bit more because they're happy to just be involved and you know like you it'll be more of a feeling of like you're sort of buying something to beta test and to be uh, working with the Pebble guys. And like being part of a, a sort of a growing thing, and you know, it's kind of like how OnePlus kind of was way back in the day, where you felt like you were getting in on the ground floor before sort of you know, it became a business, as you've talked about in one of your videos before. Um, so, is there enough of that element where you can say, um, uh, where, where there's enough people out there who will be like, yeah, I, I'm happy to overpay for this because I want to support this and I want to see it happen, or is it the fact, as you said, that 
uh, not a single Android maker makes tiny little phones because they have tiny little interests, um, and uh, it just sort of always seems to to die out, even if uh, Palm re- resurrects itself for a tiny little phone that's stuck on Verizon. Um, yeah, I, yeah. This the the people want small phones thing is like the definition of everyone has tried it. No, it didn't work a single time, and the end. <laughs> so, so I, I have a I have a bit of a. I understand that be, there are a lot of people who say that they want the small phone, but then nobody ever fucking buys the small phone when they come out. So, like, like how how many times can you run through this loop before you realize that there's no business there? Anyway, so let's assume that I'm wrong, and let's assume that um, people do want the small phone, and and that people pay extra for it. Another mm-hmm. question. Uh, I agree that uh, one of the things that this company is trying to do, well, it's not even a company, but one of the this things that these guys are trying to do is uh, do a community effort, have people vote on various designs, Isn't and it? be part of the development process of the phone. I think that's fun. I think if it's well done, it can be fun. Uh, I don't think it's uh, 50,000 people of uh, hey. club of fun. Um and having seen a lot of tech communities before, I mean, I ran one at Oppo. <laughs> um, it's chaos, and people will not agree on anything. And uh, you will have to make uh, very significant compromises, especially if you try to run a business. Which means that eventually you're going to have to do things that the community does not like. Uh, because, for example, if the community, if you ask the community how many years of software support do you want, the answer is. 17 <laughs> and you as a company will go like what if it was two <laughs> you know yeah. And, and, yeah and it just it just goes from like very exciting and cute to very bitter very soon uh as soon as you start hitting the realities yes. and and i think there is an art to making it happen especially in the early days to like get you off the ground um because uh, everyone's naive and happy in the beginning and uh a lot of it depends on execution. Like, if you asked me whether right. what Carl is doing is possible or reasonable, I would have also said it's not. And yet here he is because it's Carl and because he is like a wizard that just warps time and space. And people are like, I- I'm excited about this. Literally changes work. reality. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah I want to work for this. And then they like view products in ways that they would have never viewed them if it wasn't coming out of Carl and so on. So, like, of course, if you're if you're a magician, if theoretically it's possible. The chances are extremely slim, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that summarizes it pretty well. Um, I I think we'd both be surprised if it got off the ground, but I'd be fascinated to see if they do even attempt the crowdfunding um, yeah. scheme and then see how far that goes. Uh, I don't know if we'll be hired to be the part of their marketing efforts based on this conversation, but... Uh, I would certainly be. I would, um, I would say, I have done coverage. I was the first person to do coverage for Block's phone. Yes. Uh, the first person to do coverage for their ratio launcher. By the way, mm, I uh, remember that. Yeah. The first per. I was at the launch event of Carbon Mobile. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I'm very well set up. I have two Pebble watches as well. I was <laughs> I was a Kickstarter backer there. So I'm I'm into starting weird new projects, and if they want to talk, I'm very happy to talk. I, I'm just I'm just putting it out there that I I'm somewhat suspicious as to the success of this project. Okay, well let's get you into their Discord and then let's see see what happens. Yeah. Oh, witness the fireworks. Um, but no, good discussion. Um, 
And uh, our next topic sort of is part of this conversation a little bit because when it comes down to revenue and pricing. So this week, CounterPoint data told us that premium smartphones generated more revenue than the cheaper end of the market in 2022. And that was for the first time ever. So they CounterPoint dressed this up as like a huge milestone happening. And I, I don't know if it's that big of a deal, but it is kind of interesting. So the exact numbers, um, and I think we'll put up uh, uh, a little graphic here, uh, but the exact numbers are that premium smartphones, so those valued at a wholesale price of $600 and over, so retail pricing a little bit higher, they made up 21% of sales, but they generated 55% of all revenues. So uh, looking at the other way around, 79% of sales generated just 45% of all revenues. And, you know, this is the iPhone problem a little bit where Apple just dominates revenues and, and the profit side of things. But this is just revenues. So, um, Martin, a little game I want to play with you here is uh, finding out which side of the, this equation you want to be on. So for every 100 smartphones sold, we can say sort of maybe 20 of those are premium and 80 of those are in, you know, the mid-range or, or lower-end categories. So would you rather be in the business of selling 20 handsets and making 55% of all revenue? Or would you be rather selling the other side? So, you know, a, a portion of that 80 handsets uh, in the mid-range or the lower range that get that smaller share of revenue, but you're selling way more stock and therefore accessories and all the other sort of revenue vectors that come along with that. Uh, yeah. Tell me. Okay. So uh, the answer is that your question is wrong. <laughs> you nearly made me spit my water. <laughs> So if you're Apple, you can afford to be only on the premium end. If you're anybody is else, uh, and if you want to play at scale, that is, you're not a niche player like OnePlus or whatever, that only has like one or two phones. Uh, but it? for almost anybody else, you, uh, you, you can't, there's a, there's synergy from being in all of the categories at the same time. Uh, so you wouldn't make the choice of either one or the other. I can explain what the synergy is later, but also the, the most, the sweetest category is the middle. Um, so, uh, on so the mid, you saying mid range, mid range. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, cause on the high end, unless you're very, very dominant and you're, um, you know, Samsung with foldables or like there's a few times in, in, in the market where, uh, you bring out, uh, foldables, uh, bring out the flagship phone that's very profitable and things are great. But the problem with the high end is that it's very risky. You, you make, uh, large investments I uh, into the new technology. And they either pay off or they don't, and mo most of the time they don't pay off, um, or they, or if they do, it's you know they they barely make back the the money that you put into it. Um, and it also fluctuates quite a lot. You you have a one year you have a hit, and then it's great, and you like take a huge part of the market. And one year you have slightly miscalculated. You chose the wrong design for the camera element, and you decided to make foldables instead of regular ones or whatever, and then and then you you, you fall. So that's kind of a risky category. Um, uh, on the bottom end, again, obviously not a great place to be because you're fighting over like tiniest margins and everything. Um, middle is really nice because you can take essentially the tech that the high end has, uh, uh developed the last year and you just repackage it and you sell it for still a pretty good amount of money and you can, um, you can, uh, uh, make up the higher margins because you have a strong brand, for example. You don't have to win by component prices or everything. As You don't have to fight so hard over the margins like, like you have to uh, on the bottom end. So your Samsung, you can sell the A54 for like $500, even though it probably costs you not that much to make and there's no new revolutionary tech in there. And and you have huge volumes still, so it's a nice 
the middle is the nice place to be. Uh, fun fact, this is why, where Opal was really strong, and this is the category that they were pushing the most while, while I was there. They completely gave up the high end at some point um, yeah. because the middle was just uh, so much more profitable and so much easier to be in than, than, than the high end. The high end is primarily um, for companies that either want to A, make a name for themselves because it is how you get consumers to care about you and to establish yourself as a premium brand, so it's useful for that. Or occasionally you get lucky and then you make a lot of money. But <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, and just what you're saying there about Oppo um, is topical because uh, in the checkout we mentioned that the Find X6 series is now out. Uh, but Oppo won't be bringing it outside of China for the first time, I think. So I think the X5 and the X3 before it both came out in uh, Europe and, and Asia and Australia and whatever. Uh, obviously, they don't they don't come out in the US, so let's not spend too much time on it. But the the, the basic idea that Oppo is saying, yeah, we have a new flagship, but we're not going to release it very far, is kind of weird. Um, uh, and you spoke, you, you told me yesterday that um, you can kind of see why, because uh, it's really difficult to compete on the on the at the flagship end, especially in this current market. Um, yeah, but I, I still find it weird that. Oppo just isn't going to release their nice shiny phone that uh, is at very high margins, in theory, um, into the wider market. Yep. And I guess it's just the expense that you know it's got a huge price tag. It always has um, yep. these Oppo high-end phones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the flagship markets for Oppo are primarily Europe um, and a few Southeast Asian countries, I suppose. But like by far the the large largest amount of flagships that they sell are in China. Um, they're fairly strong on the premium, and there in most of their other markets, they're a mid to low end player. Yes. Um, the 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 volumes that they move are in their A series, um, and so it's difficult for them to maintain multiple flagships in markets uh, like India, for example. It just doesn't make any financial sense. There's yeah. not that many Opal flagships being sold there. Um, Europe was uh, their big hope, uh, but here, of course, they have legal problems. Germany, uh, blah yep. blah blah, and they already have uh, two flagships that they're that they're competing with: uh, the Flip and the uh, Fold. Uh, I don't think right. they bring the Fold to Europe either, because again, yet, one yeah. is yeah. enough. Um, <laughs> but they have three, so uh, they have like obviously three flagships for a market where they have like one or two percent market share is just too much. So. That they decided to focus on one. Probably the flip is the most unique one in the, the European market. They decided that that is the has the easiest chance of standing out. So uh, they push in the flip hard, which I think is probably the right call. Okay. Yep. That, that kind of makes sense. Uh, it does sort of tell me that the golden age of smartphones is over. You know, you're not just going to have a store full of uh, flagships that we can pick and choose from, and they're all very good. Um, yeah. It's more like the mid range is where. Anyway. Uh, I think we've talked about that before, so yep. I don't want to keep going on about it. And we we were already at um, we already need to get on to our next topic, which is um, Martin. You were saying yesterday as we worked on the checkout that you've tried Microsoft's Notion clone. It released this week, so um, this is going to be part of Office, and it's called Microsoft Loop, and it looks exactly the same as Notion. Uh, and we use Notion at the moment to collab on this podcast and on videos, um, but we also tie in pretty closely with Microsoft stuff. We use OneNote. Um, like a crazy person that's basically where every piece of your data lives so uh, I imagine we'll try loop together uh, but do you see us using it 
And um, I'll save any further questions for the mailbag because it's going to come up again. Um, but uh, yeah, brief thoughts on on Microsoft Loop uh, from what you saw. It looks really pretty. It's basically Notion, but slightly simpler and slightly prettier with more colors and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, I feel like Notion is a little bare bones, but uh, it makes sense because it's it's such a complicated app by now that they, they, they don't want to overcomplicate it even more with visual elements. Um, but yeah, uh, really pretty works, seems to work really well. Uh, the one major thing in, no, in Loop uh, that is new over Notion, uh, on top of just the regular structure and everything else that is copying from Notion, um, is that they're so-called loop components. If you ever heard before, Microsoft used to call these, um, I want to say fluid components or fluent components uh, yes. or whatever yes, they're... Fluid. I think fluids, right? Yep, fluid, yep, yep. yeah. Uh, so this is, you can essentially turn any part of uh, any element in loop, be it a text block or a uh, spreadsheet or, or an image or whatever else, into a component that you can share in other Microsoft applications. And theoretically, later on, maybe even the web. So um, imagine a table uh, that okay. you can uh, create in loop, and then you can drop it into Microsoft Teams or Outlook or uh, Word or PowerPoint or whatever. And then it, that uh, table still syncs back and uh, is interactive and uh, um, people can use it across all of these multiple places at the same time. So it's like a document within a document. Um, and that's kind of cool. Uh, I don't know what the exact use cases will be, but imagine like a voting table. Uh, you create a table in Loop and you drop it in your, your team's chat and then people vote and then it syncs back everything to Loop right yeah, away or something okay. like that. Okay. It's pretty cool. Um, well, classic uh, classic big company stuff. Uh, Re recreating a little popular app that's out there and saying that we we made it first and this is where you can get things done i guess um uh, let, let's talk about it a little bit further in in the mailbag because that's coming right. up so uh let let's just go straight into the mailbag actually so uh thanks to everyone who, who's written in um and the mailbag is where we but mostly you answer questions or thoughts from readers about different things um so i, I had i had the questions in a different order but let's just go straight into the loop thing so Someone says, uh, do you think Loop will disrupt or even bankrupt Notion? Uh, or could it help Notion, for, for example, if people like the idea, but Microsoft sort of flubs the implementation or like, you know, they, they're not really part of the Microsoft ecosystem. So they sort of stay away from it and think, oh, great. Now this is my chance to actually get into Notion. Uh, um, yeah. What do you think? Mm, I think... Uh, Notion is definitely not happy about this. We can yes. see that Microsoft has done essentially the same with Slack. They saw this very popular work tool and then they copied it. And we can see what happened to Slack, which is that their growth, um, essentially, it didn't decrease. They didn't disrupt Slack. Slack is still doing fine. But uh, Microsoft just completely sucked out the energy of the room uh, with Teams. So uh, from 2017, I think in the video podcast we'll show a graph Yeah, there's here. numbers here. There's numbers in a, in a graph, yeah. Yeah, but um, I'll just explain it. So from 2017 to 2022, uh, you can see Slack growing at a very, <laughs> what looks like basically not growing at all, but actually they're, they're adding about two to, two to three million new users uh, every year, which is, which is respectable. You know, these are paid users, so it's, it's cool. Um, Microsoft, on the other hand, has this <laughs> insane exponential curve 
and they went from zero to 270 million users, whereas Slack is now at 18. Uh, so it's uh, you can see that uh, just the power of, of free distribution, uh, every one of these organizations around the world already has an Office subscription, and Teams is free, and it's built in, well, free with your subscription, that is, it's built in, etc. Um, incredibly powerful. Of course, Slack was bought by Salesforce um, for a pretty handy amount of money. So it's not like, you know, they went bankrupt or life is bad. And uh, this is kind of what happens uh, uh, when a big gorilla enters the room that the the smaller fish kind of uh, band together and um, try to present a united front. I would not be surprised. I mean, it's too early to, to tell whether people really like Loop. Uh, and of course, people didn't like Teams either, but it didn't matter. <laughs> Got successful anyway. It's too early to tell whether uh, they will outcompete um, Notion or not. Uh, my suspicion is that they probably will have a similar curve as they have had with Teams. It's going to be extremely successful. Um, and Notion is going to be just fine, but definitely not happy. Yeah, and... I guess one of the things about Notion that we talked about is that um, Notion's CEO, uh, Ivan Zhao, was saying he was sort of betting on AI for Notion, uh, which is also where Microsoft is playing. So yeah, good luck be trying tricky. to beat. Um, good luck trying to beat Microsoft on AI. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, difficult battle. But yeah, I, I think it's good in terms of it's good to see apps like Notion and Slack create new ways of working, and then okay, so. I'm not. I'm not a fan of when you know Apple steps in and decides to to clone an app that re reduces a bunch of founders to to nothing. But um, the idea that existing tools are improved, like Office is actually improved, and and that's part of your subscription anyway, seems semi okay. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe maybe I'm betting both ways here. But uh, okay, moving on. Someone else writes. Uh, what's your what are your thoughts on the Linus Tech Tips hack? Um, so, uh, just very briefly, so everyone knows that probably everyone who's listening to this already knows, uh, the channel was hacked. Um, but as it turns out, uh, Linus put out a video saying it wasn't, uh, like a compromised password or 2FA, but actually through, uh, targeting session tokens. So someone within the organization clicked a link that looked like a PDF and malware grabbed the user data and cookies from Chrome and Edge. And so, um, they were able to basically take the, all the logged in sessions, um, that, that were already present uh, and use them on their, their own computer, including the session tokens for access to YouTube. And they were able to put a bunch of weird crypto live broadcasts and Elon Musk stuff up and actually scam people. Um, so, uh, yeah, your thoughts on all this? Yeah, it's pretty wild that uh, this is a, a really, really uh, smart hack, right? Like you don't, you don't actually try to get the credentials you get you get their already logged in session token, and then you just authenticate yourself with that. That's that's pretty smart. Um, kind of wild that Google does not ask for you to re-authenticate yourself more often. Uh, you know, it's this typical thing where you log into Google and it, like, unless you nuke your computer, you never have to log in again. Uh, so probably that might have to change, uh, and you might have to authenticate more often, especially if you're doing special actions like deleting a thousand videos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> doing that's probably doing true. something crazy. Maybe you should ask for authentication. Um, but uh, yeah, so unfortunate. Um, really happy that Linus got his channel back, uh, and uh, I think pretty much well done for everyone who was involved. Uh, would not 
have wanted to be in this position, would not have wanted to be in this position and be a smaller creator who didn't have like the might of the LTD yeah. army behind him. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it, I think it turned out fine-ish. So one fun thing that they said was that uh, they got five thousand people who signed up to Float Plane. They're they're essentially their version of Nebula. <laughs> oh, that many? Oh, I didn't actually see that. Wow. Yeah, they said this okay. in the video. Uh, probably it's going to be more, right? Because like this whole fiasco is still uh, uh, going to pay dividends in a sense. So uh, I don't want to say that you know they financially benefited from this or anything like that. But but that's a that's a fun I mean, side effect. That yeah, that's that that's obviously the conspiracy theory now. Like yeah, oh sure you were hacked. You know, great great yeah. publicity. But <laughs> no, um, no, no, it's uh, of course not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it 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 does show though that it's it's really good to have multiple platforms to be on even yes. though i love youtube of course i love youtube but we all we all do but it's it's good to have multiple platforms and multiple revenue streams because you never know what happens to yeah no this is any of so your two, accounts or two things on this is is when facebook made every news page in australia go away because they were arguing with the government essentially um so many news organizations are actually like oh we don't have any way to contact anyone who comes to our site because we didn't have a newsletter set up we have a basic twitter account we don't you know we don't use instagram so these massive facebook pages just disappeared and people and no one had the ability to, to to work with their user base um which created all sorts of panic for the you know two or three days that facebook um did that uh but the other thing i just wanted to say is that um i worked on a product productivity app uh remember the milk um which had uh it's got an online uh you know like a dot com that you can go to for the for the uh-huh. web app um but also an app you could download and there's a massive battle between how often you made people re-log into the web app because um you wanted to have some sort of security there so you know you wanted to have the cookies expire at some point so that um people would need to log in again and you know re-authenticate and make sure everything was secure but uh, people got so mad that you logged them out of the web app because yeah. they they you know their password's not part of their everyday activities, so they just yeah. didn't know their password. And because it's a web app, you may not have used you know saved passwords in Chrome or whatever. So uh, a real battle there to to make the user experience decent and actually to have it secure. Um, so yeah, I definitely saw given, that firsthand. Given the choice, people always choose terrible security. Um, <laughs> yeah. And what could you do as a company? I mean, like it's partially. Partially on the users to secure themselves, but uh, yeah, partially in you, the company, to make sure that they secure themselves even if they don't want to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, I'm going to save one meta question maybe for next week, but let's get to the, just the one final question uh, before we get to the trivia fact corner, which is uh, just briefly on AI, which is do you think Bard can make or break Google? So Bard is the AI tool Google released this week just in the US and UK. Uh, I think people were... Uh, I guess the reason for this question is because it certainly didn't make Google, but did not set the world on fire. It, people were like, oh, this is almost as good as chat GPT, but not as good, let alone GPT-4. I think this AI hype train will like fizzle out a little bit uh, in a couple of months. Like with everything else, we'll get bored of it. Um, and Google, this is a long race. Uh, Google uh, can ha- can improve over the next year or two. They will they're smart. They have great, uh, unique assets. They have access to all your personal data that they can train st- and a- access um, with their AI tool. Um, they have great, uh, um, unique hardware and cloud infrastructure and everything. So they're they're gonna get this, I think. 
Um, it's going to be fine. Is my take. Sure. I, my very brief take is it's not going to break Google if Bard doesn't go well, but it may continue the undercurrent of disruption. Or like not, not disruption is in the, the tech sense of disruption where, you know, Notion is currently being disrupted, but like disruption within the organization of Google where suddenly the pillars that it was built on sort of feel a bit more like sand than stone yeah. and yeah, yeah cause some problems. It could, it could be one of these like slow declines, <laughs> but I don't know. I, I think it's, I, I'm not too panicked about this. <laughs> not too panicked. Martin, classic Martin, not too panicked. Exactly. All right, Martin, and we end the podcast with Trivia Fact Corner, as I was saying, so I throw a number at you uh, and we see where the conversation goes. Martin, this week, the number represents an anniversary. Uh, it is coming up to be the 40th anniversary of what? Can you possibly guess? I'm sorry these questions are so open-ended. <laughs> no? The something, the first website? or <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, I probably... Should I give you a clue that it's gaming-related? Ooh, okay. Still no idea. <laughs> okay, no worries. First Martin, video game console? No, no. I don't know. I don't know any of those dates, so you can't... If you start listing things, then I'll get embarrassed because I don't know. But, <laughs> Martin, it is Mario Brothers. So, um, it's coming up to be the 40th anniversary. There's a there's a movie in the works uh, or coming out very soon. Um uh, and also the, the the number anniversary for Mario is quite tricky because a lot of people are ready for the 40th anniversary of Super Mario Brothers in 2025. But 2023 is the it's been 40 years since Mario Brothers first and first came out. Exciting. Um, there's, there's been about 200 games that have featured the little Italian plumber. Um, and basically, yeah, what's your Mario story? When did you first run into Mario, or what was your like Mario moment where you're like, oh, I get it, I get what Nintendo's doing here. I I had a Nint uh, Nintendo, and I I don't know what it was because I was a kid, and I think my parents got rid of it when I was like seven. But we had a console, <laughs> and I rem kind of I Nintendo. distinctly remember Mario being on it, together with some game where I had a gun and I was shooting some ducks. I think, um, what like an actual, yeah, <laughs> an actual. I, I think so. <laughs> I think this is how this is this is in my memory. I don't know if this is true. But this is, it's uh, like my, my parents have never really let me play games afterwards or like not really uh, in a sense that we had a console and then I yeah. played for multiple. But while I was a kid, there was this brief window <laughs> where we had Mario. I loved it. And then it went away and I don't know what it is because my parents don't remember and it's they sold it and uh, it's gone. So this is my Mario story. <laughs> what a weird Mario story. All right. <laughs> I know, right? Mario existed in some place, maybe with a gun, and then my parents took it away. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, very how good. about you? Uh, yeah, I, I, I remember how blown away I was when I first saw Super Mario sixty four, um, which came out on the Nintendo sixty four, which was sometime like ninety six, ninety seven, uh, and uh, you know, I don't know, depending if you're in Japan or the US when that console came out. But the idea that two D Mario got turned into three D Mario was game changer for me i just distinctly remember i think i was watching my cousins play it i think they might have got it for christmas and uh like i wasn't allowed to play i had to watch i was too little but oh. um just seeing how how challenging it was and how open-ended it was that really changed gaming um yeah. but for me it was just 2d turning into 3d that was a moment the mind is blown <laughs> absolutely uh no other mario are you gonna go see the movie <laughs> nope <laughs> come on <laughs> no what if it's good well maybe but 
I mean, it won't be, so <laughs> <laughs> the answer is still no. <laughs> all right, that's cracking me up. Um, yeah. All right, uh, Martin, that is a wrap. So uh, thanks for your thoughts. Uh, and as always, you can check Martin out on Tekata, um and the Friday checkout on YouTube and Twitter, Mastodon and whatever. I'm also on Twitter. So thanks to everyone for tuning in. Uh, Martin, thanks for joining and we'll catch you next Friday. Yes, and uh, if you are a Nebula listener, thank you very much, or Nebula viewer. If you're not, then go to nebula.tv slash chillout to support the show. It is the only way that this show is supported. So if you want to keep it running, then go there and support us. Thanks, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.